Okay, an introduction, a very important introduction. Introduction number one, a story. Rabbi uh, Manis Friedman, you probably all heard of him, he's all over the internet, great lecturer, writer, publisher. And uh, he has a story that when I was actually 19 years old, and uh, at that point we knew a group of 12 that we were chosen by the Rebbe to go to Venezuela to be uh, for two years doing emissary work. Another 12 of our class was chosen to go to California, another six to Argentina, and obviously we wanted to have some guidance. So he actually sat with us from 9.30 p.m. until 6 a.m. And he was talking to us, giving us guidance on what uh, the Rebbe's approach is, how to deal, and uh, questions, answers, and all that. And then he told us a story. He told us a story that as he was a young man, his beard wasn't as divinely white as it is now, now. He was brought down to Australia and he spoke about the Holocaust. And the newspapers carried some very, very horrible feedback. Um, young American boy talking about the Holocaust. And actually he ended up, if I remember correctly, he ended up sending an apology. And I believe, if I remember correctly, that the Rebbe then told him in an answer that he should not discuss the Holocaust. The Holocaust for us to debate and discuss as Lubavitcher Chassidim is absolutely off limits. There is nothing to debate and discuss about what happened in the Holocaust. We have no justification what happened and there is no reason to try to justify what took place there. So please understand that tonight is not an exploration of the Holocaust and the six million holy ones. That's not what's happening here today. What's happening today here is we're going to be doing, based on what we're going to watch, we're going to have a deep exploration and journey into our own faith relationship with God, and even so, in difficult times. So while I'm using a movie based on a true story that happened in Auschwitz, we're going to be actually exploring and reveling in the beauty of the faith that carries throughout the entire trial from prosecution to defense. That's introduction number one. Introduction number two. Introduction number two is please note as you're going to watch the selected clips that you're about to watch that the prosecution does not deny the existence of God. Quite the contrary. It is bringing God to trial. A God that doesn't exist cannot be brought to trial. So please understand that everything that's going on over here is not about heresy. Today's exploration will not be touching the thought of heresy. What I'm here to show you is that there is such deep faith within the prosecution itself. There's such deep faith within the defense. And then there's the ultimate the faith which we're going to be seeing later at a second clip. So, what we're going to do right now is we're going to watch a seven minute clip. It was pieces selected from it. Please understand that uh, this is a Holocaust movie. It's not uh, an easy thing to watch. And then after that seven minute clip, we're gonna go into the lecture. I'm gonna line up for you the defense, prosecution, defense, prosecution, defense. And then we're going to go into the lecture of God on trial, okay? If I can ask Yolanda, please go ahead and uh, shut the lights.
And then you have the prosecution returns with, okay, but the punishment does not match the crime. The defense finally moves into, let's move away from punishment and discuss refinement, purification. That is what you just saw. Let's discuss this. People, please know that everything I'm going to share with you today here is based on a teaching of the Rebbe in 1951. The Rebbe explores not the Holocaust at all. I told you, this is not about the Holocaust. The Rebbe discusses over there three levels of faith, and that's what we're going to explore today. So you have three levels of Amuna. What are the three levels of Amuna? Level number one is in relationship with the linear finite light. We're going to go into some Kabbalistic concepts here. Made simple, don't worry. Level number one is in relationship with the linear finite light. What is the linear finite light? The linear finite light is called in Kabbalah or Hamemaleh. Or Hamamala means the light, the divine light that permeates and fills the finite lesser vessels through the fine emanation. It's not infinite, it's finite, it needs to fit. Level number two. Level number two in Amuna is in relation with the circular infinite light called in Kabbalah. Or Hasovev, the light which encompasses. The divine light that encompasses, circles, and always remains elusive to the finite vessels it encompasses the highest and the lowest equally from its own infinite perspective. There's no top of the line. There's no bottom of the line. The circle completely encompasses the entire picture equally. The highest and the level, lowest are both equal. Level number three is in relationship with the essence. We're not talking about the light now. Not the infinite and not the finite, not the linear, not the circular. We're talking about the essence in which there is no relationship with the finite vessels on their finite terms, neither permeating nor encompassing. From the essence level, it is, and within it, all simply exists. By the way, I did not expect any of you to understand the word I just said. <laughs> I just did want to lay down the groundwork to what we're going to do. Emuna, level one, the linear light. Emuna, level two, the circular light. Emuna, Level three, the essence. What we're going to discuss right now from the clip you just saw will be level one and two. After we watch the second clip, we'll be talking about level number three. So let's go right into level number one. The opening statements, the opening statements of the defense and the prosecution. You heard it's a punishment. By the way, just a little background for those who didn't watch the movie. What you were watching was a dialogue between a father and a son. The older man who started talking was the father. The son was the one that was the prosecution. And what was going on between there, you'd have to watch the whole movie to know that, is that the son actually married out of the faith. So the father is doubly shocked that he is the one prosecuting. And that's why you heard him say the line, we have sinned, and then he quietly looks at his son, or maybe you have sinned. So there's a very deep conversation going on over here. But the first thing the defense pushes forward is, it's a punishment. I mean, you, the prosecutor, married out of the faith. Walked away from the whole Torah mitzvahs. The defense responds with what? The, the defense responds with, okay, if that be the case, why? Why is everyone suffering? There's a rabbi over here, right? He points to the rabbi. That was his questioning of that individual. 
So he moves in to strike, hey, if you're talking logic, where's the logic? Okay? We're going to leave it at here for a moment for level number one. Let's talk about a Muna level number one on the linear. Let's talk about how dare anyone take God on trial. In itself, if you watch the beginning of the movie, the father is totally going ballistic. His words actually are, I don't have many hours left before I'm going to be facing God. Please, I don't want to be part of this. He feels that he's going to die. He was part of the selection that's going to die. And he's going to face God. He doesn't want to face God with still the last thing he did in this world was to put God on trial. But let's talk about what really lies here. Let's talk about faith on the level of the permeating light. What is the linear permeating light in Kabbalah? It is the divine light which says that I will deal with creation according to the parameters that creation was created with by God. God created creation. God set up the system. He set up the system with certain parameters, certain properties, and I will relate to creation on their God-given definition. That's what we're talking about here. Let's talk about what that means. A little more Kabbalah. When we talk about creation, creation is made up of ten. Within the ten, there are two categories, three intellects and seven emotions. God has created a property within creation. To quote out the Rebbe and Tanya, Ki the mind rules over the heart by its very nature from birth. So we're talking over here about creation as God created it is made up of ten, three intellects, seven emotions, and the three rule over the seven. So in this, in this plane of existence, there is logic must rule over emotions, desires, temptations. And then what happens? We throw in another property. Logic is governed, according to Kabbalah, by cause and effect. There is cause and effect. And that cause and effect needs to be logical and just. So if you talk about the linear light, the linear light must enter into the parameters of cause and effect according to the laws of justice and logic as defined by the Holy Torah. Let's talk about what kind of a munah this leads to. You see, this emunah does not allow the person to say, God can do whatever he wants. God doesn't have to be fair. God doesn't have to be just. On this level, to say that would be absolute heresy. To say that God is not Hamelech HaMishpat, the king that judges, and he judges through, through his two glory, glorious crown gems called Emes and Tzedek, truth and justice, to say that God can just rise above truth and justice because he's God. He does what he wants. On this level, number one of Amunah, that would be heresy. To be saying that I cannot dare take God and put him on trial according to his laws that he has created 
that he has accepted on level number one, the linear life, to interact with would be heresy. And thus what you're seeing over here is the trial does take place. There needs to be within our faith the true strength to be able to discuss, engage, and believe in a God of justice without reserving the right to always allow God to transcend beyond justice. Why? Because once you remove this cause and effect, a logical cause and effect, according to the laws of Torah, then what you have done is you have entered into a heresy that denies God omnipotence. We're then saying that God cannot, cannot sustain in our world which he created where there is logic and justice that must rule. We're making God too big to be able to fit in here. Now while to you that may sound glorious, while that may sound as such deep faith, oh my God, God is infinite. You want to introduce him into the finite world? You want to go ahead and appreciate God on a finite level? That's heresy. How can you take the infinite omnipotent God and bring him into a court of finite logic, finite cause and effect, finite justice? So while you may think that you're making God glorious here, you've actually handicapped God. I want to introduce to you another statement in Kabbalah. To make God infinite and not finite is to make God finite. For he is only finitely infinite. If God is true, truly infinite, then he must be finite as he is infinite. A God that cannot be finite is finite. He's finitely infinite. He can only be infinite. He can't be finite. That is finite. So the first opening part of the court case, the first opening statements that you're hearing is that we're bringing God into his own, his own chosen definition of finite to be able to interact with us on our level. Let me say this to you a little bit in a different fashion. Woe to the faith in a God who cannot be my personal God. Woe to the faith in a God who can only be infinite and cannot deal with me and feel me on my own finite level. God has created me, finitely defined as he has chosen based on the ten emanations that they close themselves within the ten vessels which make us up categorized into two categories, intellect and emotions, categorized as the three intellects will dominate over the seven emotions, and then introducing that the intellect will be dominated by cause and effect. That is exactly how Kabbalah sets up our relationship with God on this finite level. 
So please understand that while it seems very eerie that here in shul we're entertaining a movie based upon a true story, God on trial, what I'm going to share with you is to think that it is heresy to bring God on trial according to his parameters of justice is to deny God the most important level of God that we creations need. A logical God. A God that creates rules where we wake up in the morning and we know what to expect. Why do we know what to expect? Because God himself told us so. God said, in If you shall walk in my statutes, this is what will happen. And then he says, Beware, lest you turn your heart astray. And then this is what will happen. So to think that I cannot hold God accountable for what God himself has told us, to think that I cannot appreciate God on my finite level where I understand and interact with a justice, a cause and effect, a logic, I could ask a question. God, did you not promise us? Did you not say? If you cannot do that, then you do not have a personal God. You have a God with a deck of jokers and you never know what to expect next. When you have a God with a deck of jokers and you don't know what to expect next, your relationship with God has to be abstract. There is no logical understanding. There is no knowing how to make a difference. And that's why the defense and the prosecution must begin on faith level number one. The emunah, which has to do with the or hamimale, which has to do with the linear finite life where God created vessels, creations, properties, parameters, definitions, logic, cause and effect, and then God's infinite light will now contract into the finite linear light and permeate those vessels, respecting, engaging, relating to the parameters that God himself in Genesis has created those vessels with. So the first thing we need to know is that not only is it not heresy to have a logical relationship with God, it is actually heresy to believe that you cannot have a logical relationship with God. It is absolute heresy to think that God does not relate with you on a cause and effect. Most of the Torah, as we know it, most of human interaction, as we know it, is based upon cause and effect. To go beyond cause and effect is an infinite gift that does exist, known as prayer, teshuvah, self-sacrifice, those do exist. But that's not the norm. In the Torah you have medium-sized letters, small letters, and big letters. Now you tell me, 
Most of the Torah is written in what size letters? Medium. Because that is what the Torah is all about. The Torah calls itself Zotorat Adam. The Torah calls itself human. Because the most important daily in and out relationship between a Jew and God and God and a Jew is built upon the logic, the cause and effect that God has preordained in his Torah and then in creation. Thus the human, the human infrastructure is a reflection of God's Torah. And if God's Torah states cause and effect, if you shall, then I shall, but if you shall, then I shall, then understand that the human infrastructure, which is the most beautiful vessel for this divine light of Torah, is going to match. Therefore, we must understand that it is totally kosher, necessary, and probably the most primary component of our relationship with God to focus on the logical court of trial. Which trial? Which court? The court of Torah. To be able to expect results. To be able to know if I push this button, this is what's going to happen. I digress for a moment even from my own notes. Because I just want this to really hit home. Any of you ever been in a relationship with someone who you never know what to expect? You never know what to expect. Many people have such a boss. You walk into the office, you have no idea. You have to ask someone, is he in a good mood, a bad mood? You just don't know. That, what kind of relationship is that? How do you have any type of normal relationship? One holy, one sacred, one logical. The only way to have a normal relationship is if you know what to expect. Now, some of them might be quirks. We don't understand the quirks. We don't know why this boss just has something about this issue. I worked for another boss. He didn't have that issue. But at least I know this boss has this issue. It's no more every single day playing Russian roulette. I walk into my office. Whether I understand or I don't understand, I know. Do this, you get that. People, please understand. I have no idea what God has against lobster and why he's so in love with gefilter fish. It's a quirk. But I do know that if I eat lobster, I can expect one reaction. If I eat gefilter fish, I can expect another reaction. And that is the foundation and the platform upon which that night in Auschwitz was built. God, you, almighty God, infinite, omnipotent God, big enough to be both infinite and finite, has given us this relationship of finite, linear, permeating. You have created the vessel, and you have chosen to fit into the vessel. Those words that he says there sounds nasty, but it's an interesting question. Did God say that at any given time, I can call back everything, no more rules, I'm just going to do what I want, when I want. The linear, finite light demands that we don't entertain that in stage one. 
I need to really believe that God, to quote the prophet, God is your shadow. What does it mean that God is your shadow? That means that God in his infinite love and power has actually made himself the passenger and us the driver. God is actually telling us in this dance between you and I, you will be taking the lead. I will be the effect of your cause, not vice versa. And that is the beauty of what takes place in Amuna level number one. Now, before I move on to uh, level, the next level, I want to share with you something interesting. You know, he's saying that we should, we should check ourselves first, examine ourselves. I do want to say something here for a moment. Very often, on level number one, we're not open to the facts the way they are. We stick our head in a bubble, we create facts, and then we hold God accountable for those facts. Such as, I've done everything, it's God that's not responding. So many times, Maimonides says so clearly, the process of teshuva really founds itself on being mature enough to say, whoa, is that true? Was there a breach in the cause and effect? Maybe not. Maybe the cause and effect is real. Maybe I'm just not realistic with what I'm doing. So I just want to share with you that when you go into the cause and effect, before you point fingers at God, listen to what that father was saying. In our own life, we don't understand what went wrong. Look how much I've done for God. Look how much I've changed. Where is the cause and effect? Didn't you promise me in this verse that this is what you're going to do if I do this? So the first step is, well, very advisable. The Rebbe actually, this was the last, pretty much, the last thing the Rebbe told us was that every person needs to have a Rav. And I don't mean Rav as in Rabbi. I mean Rav as in mentor. Someone that can tell you, you're not being real. You may be proclaiming that you're wearing the cloak of Pinchas, but you're actually behaving like Zimri. Be a little more realistic. The cause and effect may be exactly the way it's supposed to be. And maybe if you want a different effect, you need to have a different cause. So that's very important to understand. Level number one, cause and effect. Okay, so let's go over what happens. The defense begins with the logic of cause and effect. It is a punishment. That's what you heard the man say, right? To which the prosecution responds with logic of cause and effect. Why do the innocent suffer? Okay, let's talk cause and effect. Cause and effect, the son is saying, cause and effect means that I should be the only one in Auschwitz. True. I broke away. I walked away from the Torah mitzvahs. I married a non-Jewish woman. But what's about that rabbi? What's about that man's mother? You're introducing logic. You're introducing the linear. You're introducing cause and effect. God has to play by the rules. So then what happens? So I just took you through the beautiful faith that rides through the first level that was going on here. The defense begins with it's a punishment and the prosecution doesn't back down. That's not an all-all answer. 
punishment? Didn't God tell Moses, when Moses told God, erase me from the book? Didn't God answer Moses, those who have betrayed me I will erase? Look what's going on in the camps. Babies, righteous, holy. So the prosecution brings that onto the table. We're still in level number one, people, but the plot thickens and the courtroom is elevated. Let's go over here for a moment. Let's talk about layers. We're still talking linear, but we're talking layers within the linear. I want you to do this for me for a moment. Entertain me, please, if you don't mind. Take your hand and hold it up in front of your face. Now I want you to keep your eyes exactly where I'm asking you to. You see where I put my hand? I want you to look above the hand. What do you see? You see four separate fingers. Please lower the hand now down to the wrist. What do you see now? Nope. There's no more five separate, it's one hand. Put your hand up, all you see is separate pieces. One has nothing what to do with the other. Lower your hand, what do you see now? It's not five separate pieces. When you look at your hand from the wrist up, you don't see five fingers, you see a hand. But when you look from the knuckles up, what you're seeing is four separate fingers or five separate fingers. You see, the defense elevates the discussion here. Okay, prosecution, you brought a very, very true point. If this finger is bad, and this finger is good, then which finger should be punished? Didn't God himself tell Moses, those who betrayed me I will erase, but those who are loyal to me I will not erase. So if you're looking from the knuckles up and you're seeing four separate fingers, we need to judge each one separately. We need to be able to ask ourselves, this finger, good or bad, okay? It's a selection. But when you move down a little bit, then you realize we're not looking at four or five separate fingers. You're looking at one hand. And what the defense is doing now is bringing to the prosecution, elevate yourself, please, elevate. Now I want to talk to you about why he's doing this. Because the prosecution respects layers. Remember, we're not talking heresy. We're not talking a child who only wants to hear his opinion. We're talking about a journey of faith. I'm not looking for any specific outcome. I'm just looking for truth. Please understand that in most Jewish stories, we know the end of the story. We just don't know the middle. We know it's going to end up good. We know that God is right. We just don't understand the middle. Let's talk about this for a moment. So we have over here... The defense and the prosecution are entering now into an elevated discussion. What is that elevated discussion? The defense is telling the prosecution, okay, I hear you. Cause and effect. Cause and effect built on logic. The logic of Torah. But with that being said, let's understand something. When we talk about the vessels, when we talk about identity, please do not drag God into your own selfish, egocentric individualism of human separatedness. Separation. Do not drag God into your selfish definition 
of egocentric individual of separatism. When we talk about the human individualism, we must remain within God's perspective of individualism. What is God's perspective of individualism? What is God's perspective of you're okay, you're not okay, you're okay, you're not okay? Looking at people individually, what is God's definition? Please understand that God's fingerprint upon each and every creation is unity and oneness. So when you talk about individualism, please appreciate that the definition of individualism is individual expressions of a unified people. People, let's quote Haman from the Megillah. When Haman introduces the King Ahasuerus, the Jewish people, what is the verse that he says? Yeshno am echad mifuzar umiforad. There is one people that are scattered and separated. Look at your hand. There is one people separated, scattered. And that's why when you look at the true definition of the linear, do not separate the emanations, do not separate individuals as to be truly individual. For ultimately speaking, we are all individual expressions of oneness. We're about to move into the checkmate from the prosecution, but I have two things to take care of before I do that. Number one, I have no reason to give you a lecture on faith that's not going to help you when you walk out of this room and get called by someone that's going to break you some bad news that you owe money. That's not going to help. So let's be practical here. What is going on between the prosecution and defense that can help me in my daily struggles of earning a living, health, or whatever it's going to be? What happens is very often when we move into a cause and effect of logic, we try to drag God into our own immature definition of individualism. To be more specific, we tell God, God, if you agreed that you're going to be linear, if you agreed that you're going to have playing on our plane of existence of vessels, definition, form, shape, top, bottom, logic, then I need to talk to you, God, because it's not fair. And what we do is we try to bring God into our fragmented perception of reality. Kids are great at that, by the way. One of the biggest challenges between a parent and a child is that the child has a very fragmented reality. He doesn't see how things intertwine. He never understands the oneness that flows between everything. The child never understands the relationship that goes on beyond the individual's individuality. I've taught my sons. You have a first name, you have a last name. The first name is your individuality. Your last name is your family's name. Kids don't understand that. They need to be taught that. We do the same with God in our own life. In our own life, we are consistently trying to draw God into our fragmented individualism, which, by the way, drives us all crazy because eventually 
we're wearing a million hats, we're getting drained. We just can't live like that. When we deal with God on that level, God's telling us, no, no. Listen to what the defense said. It is wrong to make this personal. It isn't about this individual piece of this individual or this individual behavior. We need to learn how to look at individualism in a much more holistic fashion. So here is another way to hear what the prosecution and defense just did. Prosecution is saying no holistic. Defense is saying yes holistic. Let's talk about for a moment holistic because right now actually more and more of the human race as individuals and on a global level is starting to embrace holistic. We actually have no choice but to embrace holistic. With today's even economy, Japan, what happened in Japan is going to affect the American economy. There is no more true separation and individualism. Medicine, medicine has taken a whole change. While medicine used to work in isolation, separatism, this is what you're dealing with, let's only deal with this. We're now understanding that that doesn't work. It's holistic. Let's talk about our individual lives. We separate. We separate our office from our home. We separate our office from our shul. We separate the way we pray from the way we eat. We're looking for isolation. God, it's not about that before I maybe had a cheeseburger, but right now, right now, I'm doing something good. Which, by the way, I'm not saying that that doesn't have a place in reality. But I just want to share with you that if you want to play by the rules, if this is about God, then let's be fair. Let us absolutely discuss individualism, not from my egocentric, selfish point of view, which demands isolation and separatism, but let's talk about it from the true divine definition of individualism, which is an expression of holistic. So that's the first point we need to understand. In our individual lives, this is going on. In our individual lives, we can have a guy who married out of the faith, who's not keeping Torah, who's not keeping mitzvahs, not doing anything, bring God on trial, and then when he has to face his own dealings, he then points a finger, but what's about her? What's about him? Why are they being punished? I'm the only bad one. And Hashem's response is, you and they are two fingers of one hand. It's holistic. It's holistic. There isn't a place in the world today that what's taking place there will not affect every other place in the world at some level. That's point number one I want to just make before we move on to the checkmates in the prosecution. Because the prosecution does represent a beautiful checkmate here. I want to move on to another point. You did hear that opening line it's a test. I do want to for a moment just talk about tests. It is absolutely true that God tests. God tested Abraham with 10 tests and ever since God has tested every single one of his offspring. Tests is just part of our relationship with God. I'm not here to question whether tests exist. I don't think any of us can question whether tests exist. It's all over the Torah. 
God actually says that I will send a false prophet in order to test you. What I really want to discuss for a moment is why does God test? A real question. Why does God test us? So let's talk about this. The reason why a teacher tests a student is because the teacher does not know what the student knows. A simple level. The student saying, I do know it. Teacher saying, no, you don't. I saw you playing in middle of class. I do know it. Okay, take a test. Surprise, surprise, the kid passed the test. We do that in relationships. We test each other. We want to know how true this friendship is. How far will you go for me? I don't know. I don't know what's in your heart. But if that's the reason for test, why would God test us? Is there anything about my heart that God doesn't know? Is there any crevice in my heart that God hasn't already explored? Why would God test me? So we need to just understand the reason for tests. It isn't about the teacher, it's about the student. The only reason why God tests us is because God is pushing us out of cruise control, out of the natural flow of our gifts and faculties and talents into the deeper level. How many people are shocked by what they were able to produce in a time of a test? I didn't think that I would ever be able to accomplish this. I didn't think I would ever be able to withstand this. So please understand that when God gives us a test, it is the experience of crushing the olive because when the olive is screaming, I have no more, all of a sudden it finds something it never knew existed, something called oil. You cannot smooth talk oil out of an olive. I wish it were different. It isn't. There isn't a salesman in the world that will get an olive to lovingly give up its oil. Tests exist for only one reason to push you deeper into yourself. Don't use your natural external gifts of intellect and emotion. Find the essence. Find what lies within the inner dimensions of your faculties. Find out how smart you really are. Find out how strong you really are. Find out how emotional you really are. I've shared this with you before, I'll share it with you again. It was Saturday night, two days after Purim, 1994. My wife and I were in West Boca Medical. For whatever reason, I didn't get to hold the baby right away. But that moment will never leave me because there were emotions I didn't even know I was capable of having. I would never have known those. There was a time when that same little boy broke his hand. It was Friday night, and he was there standing in my hand. There was nothing I can do. His hand was physically not straight. I'll never forget that feeling, a feeling of helplessness I've never had in my life. See, when you're put into positions, you find out things about yourself you never knew existed. But that's not the end of the test, because then there's another level of test where even your interior your inner dimensions of your faculty 
won't help you. There are those moments, those unique moments, where it's a do or die. You've got to go for your essence. Not your external dimension of the faculty, not your inner dimension of the faculty. It'll either be the essence or nothing at all. Those are the ultimate tests where Hashem takes you to a piece of you that you will never, ever otherwise know exists. So what I want to share with you about tests is something very practical. It is said that unless a spouse is, God forbid, tested with infidelity and emerges victorious, they'll never know how much they really love their spouse. That night, without her knowing, the hug will be a little tighter and the kiss infinitely truer. It was only brought out by a test. Without a test, you never get to know what lies within you. Those are two points I wanted to make before I move into the checkmate of the prosecution. Number one, please understand I'm not here taking you through esoteric teachings of Amuna. I'm talking to you about you and I and our struggles. I'm talking to you and I about how we love to fragment reality and not see that individualism is nothing more and nothing less than an absolute individual expression of a oneness. There is no true individual Jew, which also means there is no Jew who is truly lonely. We are all individual expressions of that one great existence. And that's what the defense responded to the prosecution. Don't make it personal. It's about the hand, not about the finger. Guys, it's time to move into the uh, checkmate. What is the checkmate of the prosecution? Checkmate of the prosecution is the following words. The punishment does not match the crime. That's the checkmate. Checkmate on level one. See, what happens over here is that when we talk about logic, cause and effect, I can absolutely experience someone telling me, hey, hey, guy, 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 lower your gaze, lower your gaze. It's not five separate fingers, it's one hand. You've got a last name. It's called Jew. So it's not about what you're doing. It's also about what you're doing to the whole people. Every Jew knows that. Unfortunately, we had a case where one Jew just recently robbed millions of millions of dollars. They didn't talk about him just as an individual. They talked about him as a Jew. It wasn't just hating this one individual that sparked up anti-Semitism. I'm not sure that it happens with other nations, but it happens with us. So the defense is so eloquently answering the prosecution. You asked me why? You asked me why do the righteous suffer? Because Look into the divine perspective of individualism. Five fingers to one hand. I also shared with you the purpose of tests. Purpose of tests is to accelerate your experience of self, parts of you that you never knew existed. But now there's the prosecution's checkmate on level one. It's all good and fine. But cause and effect, cause and effect, the effect has to match the cause. I can appreciate the holistic approach, but it's got to match the cause. 
There is no way to justify that was in the Holocaust. There is no way to justify that this punishment, i.e. effect, is even remotely equal to the cause, i.e. the sin. Checkmate on level number one. Guys, we're going to move into level number two. We're moving along over here. We have a half hour left for lunch, so I need to cover still another clip. So let's move along a little quicker here. But this is a very, very powerful piece that takes place here. You guys remember what you saw in the clip? All of a sudden, he introduces something amazing. Let's move away from punishment for a while, right? That's what he says. Let's move away from punishment, okay? Let's talk about purification. Let me tell you something beautiful. This is the gift that the prosecution gave the defense because the defense would have remained on level number one were it not for the prosecution demanding it to recheck whether that will actually suffice. It was the prosecution that crushed the olive and demanded that the defense should rise up to level number two. Because level number one for the Holocaust will not work. If you talk cause and effect, there is no justification for what God did to us. Previous Rebbe was once bemoaning during the uh, war about what was going on. There's another rabbi there who started justifying what God was doing. Notice and the previous Rebbe looked up at him and said, please, God can manage without you. He doesn't need a lawyer. There's another time the previous Rebbe said, and if God was sending us a message, we didn't get it. So why did he do it? On level number one, as of right now, we're going to accept that the prosecution pulled out a checkmate. The defense has no choice but to realize that there's something deeper than level one taking place here. We're now going to move into level two. Level two is not about the Orhamamala. It's not about the linear light. It's about the circular light. It's not about cause and effect logic as we know it and study it in the Torah because even according to the Torah, the Holocaust may not be justifiable. If you ask me how I dare say that, I share with you that we say it every single Yom Kippur in our Machsa. When the 10 martyrs, the 10 holy sages were tortured to death and the angels looked up to God and said, this is your Torah and this is your reward. Rabbi Akiva being burnt, another great rabbi being filleted. What's going on here? And you remember what God answers? You say it every year in the Imkipa Machser. Silence. One more complaint and I will revert the world back to the water it was before I began creation. That's a teaching for itself. I'm not going to go there today, but I just want you to know that I personally heard the Rebbe compare the Holocaust to that story. Please feel absolutely in faith and ease to be able to say that on level number one, defense was checkmated by prosecution. We cannot approach the Holocaust through the, through the finite permeating light with the logic of cause and effect. Therefore, 
the defense has no choice but to realize there's something deeper at play, just like the angels with the 10 martyrs had no choice but to embrace. We need to elevate from the linear to the circular. So let's talk about this. You see, level number two is a very interesting experience. Level number two is hovering between the rational and the transrational, between the natural and the transnatural. On one hand, it is transrational. On the other hand, it hugs and caresses the natural. It's not just about outright emunah. God can do whatever he wants. He doesn't have to make sense. And who are you to tell God? And I'm going to die in a little bit. And I'm going to face God. And I don't even want to take care of this part, part of this conversation. Because at the end of the day, God does not have a deck of cards. God has a deck of jokers. And that's it. That's not what's going on here. Level number two is the circular hovering just above, just within the grasp of the linear. It's where it makes sense, it makes sense, it makes sense. But when I really try to digest it with my brain, it eludes me. I'm sure we've all experienced this. You're learning something, you're learning something, you get it, I get it, I get it, I don't really get it, but I get it. I know what you say, I hear what you're saying, I understand what you're saying, but I just don't get it. It's circular. Level number two, or Hasoviv. What I want to share with you here is introducing the word refinement, purification. It makes sense, but I just don't get it. Why does refinement have to be through suffering? But it makes so much sense. It's not always about my past, it's about my future. It isn't retribution and punishment for what I did yesterday. It's preparing me, opening me up to what I need to receive tomorrow. It isn't a horrific situation. It's a beautiful situation. But it's a painful, beautiful situation. Let's talk about Egypt. What does it say about Egypt? It says about Egypt that that was the smelting pot in which God refined the gold so he can bring it pure to Mount Sinai. What does that mean? What that means is that the whole suffering of Egypt was only for one purpose. It was to refine the egocentric coarseness of the physicality in order that it be become a vessel to be able to open up for a theocentric spirituality. Mind you, mind you, Parenthetically speaking, there are those of us who are great in using spirituality not as selfless theocentric, but as deep selfish egocentric. I do what I do only for the reasons of why I do it. If I do this, I'll have a lot of money. If I do this, God will forgive me. If I do this, it's all about me, 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 me. Without Egypt, that's exactly what would have happened. We would have gone to Mount Sinai, like good Jews wearing an amazing business investment hat and figure out whether it makes sense or doesn't make sense to say yes to God. There is no way that any human could ever utter these two words 
without Egypt. Na'aseh v'nishma. I'm not going to think about it. I'm going to accept it. Now that I accept it, let me hear what you're offering. Why? Because this isn't about me. It's about you, God. It's what you want. I'm saying yes. That level number two, it, it makes sense. It does make sense that we need to refine ourselves to go from selfish to selfless, from egocentric to theocentric, from it's all about me to it's not all about me. But there's so many questions that don't make sense because it is the Or HaSovev, not the Or HaMamala. Yes, it's caressing, it's hovering, it's hugging my infrastructure, but it always eludes my infrastructure. I can never really grab onto it and say, yes, I got it, I understand it, I appreciate it. The Or HaSovev, the word Or means light. Light is revelation. Revelation doesn't need faith. It needs intellect. But there's something unique and magical about this light. Because even though it's light, it's revelation, engaged with intellect, but it's the encompassing light. It's the elusive light. If you only use intellect, you're not going to be able to really absorb it. You need to let go, just a little bit, let go of the level number one of faith. Loosen the grip of everything has to absolutely make sense, cause and effect, until I, in my selflessness, in my selfishness, in my coarseness, in my egocentrism, can make sense, aha, uh -huh, I got it, yeah, yeah, this is okay, God, this one you did right. It won't work that way. And that's why, ultimately speaking, you notice in the movie, all of a sudden, there is a serenity that didn't exist before when he began talking about refinement. Have you noticed that, or am I just making things up? All of a sudden, things change in the room. It's as if they were just elevated into a different plane of reality. All of a sudden, the obnoxiousness of God, you must make sense to me. I need to understand it. I need to make sense of it. I need to say that this is okay. All of a sudden, it changes. All of a sudden, I'm beginning to appreciate that, hey, maybe I, I, I got a glimpse of it, but I don't totally get it. I want to talk about this in a personal level, human level. Remember, we're not here to discuss the Holocaust. We never will be able to discuss that. But let's discuss refinement on a different level. You know, Friday I had a conversation with someone, a friend of mine, and we had a conversation, and he teaches techniques. And we spoke about the technique of leaving go of the past and of forgiving oneself in the journey of teshuva. It's a technique. We deal with it. So he introduced to me a total different paradigm. He told me, leave go? Forget? Why? Don't leave go of your past. Don't forget your past. Don't forgive yourself for your past. And don't be ashamed of your past. Because your past is what made you exactly who you are. Not something I digest easily, but I sat to think about this. Let's talk about level number two. I want to share with you a very, very interesting story. You see, in level number two, 
Does it make a difference whether you're given the opportunity to do one of the 248 mitzvot or your life is all about the challenge of not committing one of the 365 prohibitions? Does it make a difference from God's perspective? Let me tell you a cute story. Rab Zusha and Rab Elimelech, two brothers, holy brothers. Both of them were able to perform resurrection. We're not talking about your average person. They were both students of the great Magad of Mizrich. They were both arrested. In jail, there's a wastebasket. When I say wastebasket in a jail in Russia, I don't mean the one that you put your gum wrapper into. That is a problem. Halakhically speaking, you're not allowed to pray there. It's time to pray mincha. Rabbi Limelech, famous author of the Noim Limelech, he got very sad. He's not going to be able to dive in mincha. Rabzusha looks and notices that his brother is sad. And he says, Rabbi Limelech, what are you sad about? So he says, we can't dive in mincha. We're not going to be able to dive in mincha. There's that basket. Listen to Rabzusha's words. Tell me, my dear brother, if you were davening mincha right now, would you daven with joy? Absolutely. Then how can you not not daven mincha with joy if the only reason you're not davening mincha is because Hashem prohibited you to daven mincha? Is it about you or is it about God? If your joy is in serving God, then the same exact joy I have when I do something for God should be the exact same joy I have when I'm gifted with an opportunity to not do what I want to do, only to uphold God's prohibition. What a different paradigm, isn't it? We all love to be, uh, be spiritual, do spiritual things, but to have to overcome my animal? That's where I feel like a dog. I don't feel human. I don't feel divine. I'm not proud of what I'm going through. But if you see me learning and davening, I'm glowing. But if I'm dealing with a challenge, I'm not glowing at all. I don't feel that this is part of Hashem's service. I feel that this is part about me being such a sick person. Says Rabbi Limelech, but one second. The 365 and the 248, the do's and the don'ts, they both equally make up the 613, which is the will of God. If it's about the will of God, then what's the difference? Whether you had the opportunity now to daven and learn, or whether you're going to have to battle with something so ugly and so impure. What a different paradigm we have now on the concept of faith. And I really appreciate what he said. Not only... Sorry guys, just changing the tape over here. We're almost going to get up to the second clip and then we should be on time. 12 o'clock for lunch. Guys, we're not here to discuss Rabzush and Abelimelech, two holy tzaddikim, shining stars in our night to give us light. We're not here to talk about faith as it's written in the books. We're here to talk about you and me struggling with a lot of doo-doo. So let's talk about this. You see, the same is true in the service of God when it's not just about doing a mitzvah or any one of the natural prohibitions. See, the same thing happens 
when you really, really were chosen by God to deal and serve God from very deep and ugly past mistakes. From the circular perspective, it has to be done with joy because it's all the same. It's about refinement. It's about purification. When you deal with the ugliness, when you're willing to accept a rise from the ugliness, doesn't make a difference that you weren't chosen to be a rabbi and sit in yeshiva all day and learn and daven somewhere in Kfar Chabad having utopia every moment of your life. What if you were chosen to fight back from addiction? What if you were chosen to deal with some very dark mistakes? If you can embrace that this is God's gift to you, if you can embrace that this is your destiny, this is what God wants, then it's okay. Then you can also do this with joy. That's something that level one of faith will not appreciate. That's something that defense would never have appreciated if the persecution, prosecution, would not have pushed the buck. Now we have no choice but to embrace level number two. Level number two is sick and tired of hearing about punishment, reward. It's what you did yesterday. It's what you're going to pay for now. Level number two is talking about refinement and purification. Level number two is giving you a knock on the head and saying, would you stop making it all about you? Can we embrace for a moment that maybe it's about me, capital M, God? Can you embrace that this is your gift? This is what your soul has been chosen for? This is your destiny? The Jews did nothing, nothing to have deserved Egypt. Absolutely nothing. There was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and they were the 12 brothers. The Jews have done nothing to deserve the Holocaust. Absolutely nothing to deserve the Holocaust. And you and I maybe may have done nothing to deserve the struggles that we go through. It's just about destiny. It's about purification, opening up to a greater good tomorrow something that you and I would never be able to embrace if we're not willing to humbly accept what God is putting us through to be able to reach to where we have to reach. So while part of your brain has to consistently be checking out your yesterday before you point a finger at God, but if you are honest, and if it's not about what you did, it wasn't a choice you made, then you need to embrace it's not about yesterday, it's about tomorrow. It's not about punishment, it's about purification. For only one reason, because tomorrow's light, you're incapable of absorbing at this moment. The Jews could not say na'aseh v'nishma without Egypt, as holy as they were. The Jewish people will not be able to experience Mashiach without exile. I'm doing it again on a national level Please understand, each and every one of us, we cannot embrace the beautiful destiny that awaits us without being able to accept the refinement and purification that we individually need to go through. So, in closing for this, before we're about to watch a second clip,
Faith of level number two empowers one to be able to close his eyes and thank God for the painful yet meaningful path that God has chosen for him because with it, he is serving God and fulfilling his destiny. Alejandro, please shut the lights. We're going to see now clip number two. People of level number three. Faith on the level of essence. Not the linear finite light, not the circular infinite light. It always shines most beautiful in the simplicity of the Jew. You heard him say there, I don't know God. But then he says these words, he is here. The prosecution says, who is here? God is here. Maybe it is God who's being gassed in the gas chambers. Maybe we complete God. God needs us to complete him. There isn't much to say about level number three. It needs to be said very short because as a child, I used to look out of the window and see the beautiful snow. I always had a deep animosity to the people who would walk through it and put their finger footprints in it. Level number three is a beautiful, pure layer of white snow. I'm not here to put my footprints in it, but I need to share this with you. To understand that God and us are one and that God is suffering in our suffering, not from above, but from right here with us in our own torture chambers of suffering, fear, shame, guilt. God is there at night. With us in our bed, and in our tears that soak our pillows, and in our fears that rob our sleep. <clears throat> the rabbi's years of in intellectual study got in the way and needed to crack, while the simple Jew's purity shone in that night as the brightest <clears throat> beloved star in the sky. I'll share with you a story. There was once a Rosh Yeshiva, a rabbi who uh, ran a, yesh a yeshiva, and he would use his own money for dealing so that the yeshiva wouldn't be challenged with raising funds. One time, an opportunity arose in which he was able to invest all his money in bringing lumber. If the deal went through, then his yeshiva would be set. The deal went sour. The people contacted the rabbi's favorite student and told him what happened. They warned him to be careful on how he will break the news to his teacher. The teacher approached, the student approached his teacher and said, Rabbi, I have a question on a teaching in the tractic brachot of the Talmud. It states that just as one blesses God for good, he must bless God for the bad. When one blesses God for the good, he dances. For the good, he dances. 
Is he to dance when he blesses God for something bad? The Talmud says, Kishem, exactly the same way. The teacher responded in the affirmative. Yeah, that's what the Talmud means. When you, th when you thank God, you bless God for something painful that he did, you need to dance just as you danced by your child's wedding. The student looked down and said, Rabbi, start dancing. Immediately understanding what a student was telling him, the rabbi fainted. As the rabbi came to, he looked up into the eyes of a student and said, you know what? I too now have a question on that piece of the Talmud. Rationale won't work. When things really hurt, rationale only gets in the way. It's not essence. The rationale definitely can absorb the linear cause and effect. The rationale can romantically dance with the encompassing circular infinite, but it won't be able to deal when it's a moment of essence. The ultimate gift of the essence level of faith, three. Faith level three, which is the faith of essence within the simple, pure, and beautiful heart of every Jew. It simply and beautifully just is. Never changes and is always there for you when you need it most. We were listening to a person who had to face the worst decision ever. He had to choose a child and then look at the aftermath. He realized this isn't a job for intellect, not on faith level number one and not on faith level number three. It is the essence and where we realize that God is with us in our tears, with us in our fears, with us in our suffering. It was God being gassed in those gas chambers. Guys, we now break for lunch deliberation. People, please discuss amongst yourself all that you have heard. We will reconvene in 30 minutes for the summation and for an open forum of question and answers.